If you have uh, studied history, you'll be aware that the first three and a half centuries or so of the church's history was a little bit rough. Christianity was illegal. And from the time of Christ up to about the, the middle of the, the fourth century, around 350 or so, Christianity was, was illegal. And many, many, many Christians were persecuted and executed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And into that mix, in and around the middle of the second century, a Christian philosopher by the name of Justin Martyr decided to start writing some documents to the Roman emperor. And in those documents, many of them have not survived, but we have two in our possession. And in Justin Martyr's documents, he called them apologetics, essentially, he, he challenged and confronted the emperor to stop persecuting and killing Christians. And as you read his, his writings, he took, he took a lot of time to explain the nature of the Christian faith, to explain the doctrine of the Christian faith, because many falsehoods were swirling around about what Christians believed, some even claiming that Christians were, were cannibals. And he also explained and outlined the moral teachings of Christianity. Now, one would hope this was a good news story and the emperor was converted and persecution ceased, but the opposite actually happened. And for his efforts, Justin Martyr was beheaded in, the year one, in and around the year 165, along with several other faithful Christians, simply because he was a Christian and took a public stance for his faith in the Lord. But it's his name that would from there forward be applied to those that would pay the ultimate sacrifice for their faith. So when a person dies for Christ, we now call them a martyr. And the reason for that is because of the tremendous efforts of this man by the name of Justin Martyr who lived in the second century. But Justin Martyr was, was not the first Christian martyr. That honor goes to Stephen. You may recall when we were studying Acts chapter five that there was a bit of a programmatic, logistical, administrative problem in the early church. There were lots and lots of people that God had sent their way to feed and they couldn't keep up with the, the feeding of the poor, the widows, the orphans. And so they appointed seven faithful men to oversee the church's food distribution program. And one of those men was a man by the name of Stephen, a Jew, but a Hellenized Jew, meaning a Jew that had a Greek name and was familiar with Greek culture and spoke the Greek language. And his primary duties were to help oversee the food distribution program. But in Acts chapter six, we learned that he also had another gift. He was a preacher, he was a teacher. We don't know if this was like his side gig, whether he was moonlighting as a preacher or whether some time had passed and he'd been pushed into another ministry. But nevertheless, this same Stephen is witnessed in Acts chapter six, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ultimately he is put to death for proclaiming the resurrected Lord. Join me in Acts chapter six, verses eight through 15. We're gonna focus on this segment of scripture and then I'm gonna take you through very quickly through chapter seven and see what happens and, and what results from uh, Stephen's ministry. Acts chapter six, verse eight, it says, and Stephen full of grace 
and power. Very, very important your eyes see that. Full of grace and power. God's grace. God's power. Power from the Holy Spirit, which will be emphasized momentarily. You will never be able to take a legitimate stand for Christ unless you are filled with his grace and his power. Because by nature, we cop out. We cower. We run and hide. But not this guy. Because he's filled with the grace and mercy of God. So full of grace and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people like the apostles had done. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and they disputed with Stephen. So a debate broke out. When you proclaim truth, you're liable to get someone to raise their hand and say, I disagree. So nothing, nothing too problematic up to this point. There's a debate between Stephen and his opponents. But then we see their dastardly works, their, their evil tactics. It says in verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. God was in him, God was with him. He was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. His mind had been filled with wisdom, the proper application of biblical knowledge. He was empowered by the Spirit of God and they couldn't touch this guy. So what do they do? Then they secretly instigated men who said, now keep in mind, who are the ones secretly instigating men? Religious people, people who are supposedly committed to the Jewish faith, who are part of a synagogue. These are supposed to be moral, righteous, God-fearing people, but notice their dastardly tactics. These men make up lies. They say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and they seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, now before we go any further, doesn't the ninth commandment forbid perjuring oneself in court? Doesn't the ninth commandment forbid bearing false witness against your brother? If you allow perjury in courts when people are being tried, you no longer have a justice system. That's the backbone of the justice system. If people can lie and literally make up, fabricate, if you will, falsehoods about you, there is no justice. But these religious people who have placed themselves on this moral high ground resort to the most demonic tactics, even violating one of the Ten Commandments in order to get their way and silence Stephen. Here's the lie they make up. This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the, change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And then the camera switches over and we see Stephen. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, before we go any further in the text, we need to make a comment that applies to every passage of the scripture where we're looking at a supposed superhero for the faith. And it is this. Christ is always the hero 
of the story. Throughout Scripture, we have great men and great women of God that set incredible examples for us. We read about them in Hebrews chapter 11. We read about them in the book of Daniel. We read about them at the time of the Exodus. And we read about one such man here, men that were bold for their faith, men who are great examples. But man-centered preaching would be to preach the passage this way. Stephen's awesome, therefore go be like Stephen. But that would be a poor sermon. A good sermon would be, Stephen did awesome things because Stephen submitted himself to an awesome God. So submit yourself to that awesome God and God will use you to do awesome things as well. So that's a vertical sermon rather than a horizontal sermon. So ultimately God is the hero of the story because as we progress through this narrative, what we will see is there's certain attributes and characteristics and responses in Stephen that can only be accredited to God. They, can, they do not come from his flesh. Nevertheless, the Bible also presents us with some very good examples of scripture, in scripture, of men and women of God. And this is one such man. And his, his responses, his mindset are worthy of emulating, of copying. Because he was ultimately put to death for his faith, the question that we need to all wrestle to the ground is, would we pay the ultimate price for Christ. Now you got to mull that one over a little bit because when you're in church and you're singing and you're listening to the word of God preached, it's, it's easy to say, yeah, I, I'm a Christian. I'd pay the, the ultimate sacrifice for Christ. No problem. I'd welcome it. I, I could be like Daniel. I could be like Stephen. But as you honestly assess your life, you remember all those times when you, you, you didn't take a stand in lesser circumstances. You know, maybe you've had the experience, you're in a restaurant and you're, you're, you wanna pray for your, your food, but it does look kind of weird and you're looking around and you're wondering like, what are people gonna think? What if in the middle of my prayer, the, the waiter comes up with my, my entree? And so you just kind of blow through it or you keep your eyes open. Not that you have to pray with your eyes shut. There's no place in the Bible that says you have to, but if that's your, your general MO, but in that situation, you change it because you're afraid of what people think or something is said in a classroom or in a conversation, someone uses the Lord's name in vain and you, you just don't say anything. Because you know, it's awkward, don't want to impose Christian values on other people. Time and time again, we're tested in the small areas of life. Do people at your place of employment know that you're a Christian? Do people in your classrooms know that you are a Christian? If they don't, if they have no idea and they've known you for longer than a day, you pretty much have the answer to your question. But don't stay there. Move in the direction that Stephen moved in. And the, the means of moving in that direction, first of all, is to be filled with grace and with the power that only God can provide. Who wouldn't want that in their lives? Who wouldn't want to be an unflinching Christian, an unwavering Christian, a gracious Christian like Jesus? Stephen's task as a Greek speaker is to go out and preach the gospel to his community, those that spoke Greek, 
And God uses him, God equips him and empowers him to do signs and wonders. Now, signs and wonders are not the end goal of the mission. They're not the ultimate desire of Christian ministry, but they point people in the direction of the one who can perform signs and wonders. They point people to the supernatural God whose powers can transcend the normal laws that govern the world. The God that can raise the dead, that can heal the blind. That's the direction that signs and wonders are supposed to point people. In other words, they testify to the power of God. They don't exist so that you can go, wow, give me some more of that. They don't exist to entertain. They don't exist to prove how godly you are. They always exist to point people up and beyond you to the true and living God. The thing is, is that when you're doing signs and wonders, it draws attention. It draws the attention of those who would repent and acknowledge the power of God for the first time and put their faith in Christ, but it also can draw the ire and jealousy of your opponents. When God is moving, when God is working, when God is using you, the more fruitful you are, start to expect more demonic attack. Start to expect more opposition. When you stick your head up and say, yeah, I don't appreciate you calling my Lord that. When you say, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's right for us to be allowing this agenda, that agenda to be taught to little children. Do you think people are going to be quiet about that? You're opening yourself up to, to attack both demonic and human. And this is exactly what happened to Stephen. He was ministering to the Greek-speaking Jews. And one synagogue takes offense. It's called the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. It was probably constituted by Jews who had perhaps spent a generation or two in a, another country and perhaps had been enslaved, had been released from slavery by the Romans and had come to Israel and established their own synagogue that sort of met their cultural standards and people could speak their language. By the way, there, you're probably aware that there was one temple and multiple synagogues. So this isn't a temple. This is more like a synagogue. Synagogues were teaching outposts. They were scattered across the land of Israel. They were the place that people met when Jews migrated to other areas like Rome or Galatia or Philippi. They also often established synagogues they were places of instruction, places of public worship. And this particular synagogue existed at the time of Stephen. And the men that were part of the synagogue took issue with Stephen's message. So they argue with him. They, they debate. And again, there's nothing wrong with debate and dialogue. Paul did that. Later in the book of Acts, we'll read about that. Paul wasn't afraid to have a good verbal argument with other people. But the men who were part of the synagogue of the freedmen came up short. Why? Or we're told not because Stephen was super smart or super gifted or just extra committed, but because God was operative in his life. It says here, because of the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking in verse 10. So that gives the credit to God. 
Remember back in Acts chapter two when God poured out the Holy Spirit, we have the Pentecost event. God grants all these gifts. People are speaking in languages they've never learned. There's like flames of fire on people's heads. The Spirit of God starts to indwell people. That's incredible. But the goal of Pentecost isn't just to get you indwelt. The goal of Pentecost was to get you indwelt so that you might be equipped for the work of the ministry. So that you might go and do this kind of thing. So that you might be bolder in your testimony. So that you might be bolder in your witness. So that you might be able to pay the ultimate price for Christ. And being filled with the Holy Spirit is necessary for consistent faithfulness. Because in our flesh, if we're not walking in the Spirit, there's going to be times when we just cut and run. When the flesh takes over that natural desire to self-protect, to hide and pretend, to cower, to flee, that will take over. This man is filled with wisdom and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't stop his evil opponents. They literally make up out of thin air allegations against him, breaking the ninth commandment, bearing false witness against him. The text makes that very clear. And they have him seized because they have the power. It's often true in culture that evil people are the ones that hold the power. They have the powers to arrest, to find, to ticket, to take life. It's often the case. They exercise these powers and they seize Stephen and drag him before their kangaroo court. Now let's just pause for a moment and acknowledge this reality. This same tactic, debating with Christians, not being able to win, not being able to stop the expanse of the church, then resorting to wicked tactics, then resorting to physical force to stop your opponents, then imprisoning or killing Christians has played itself out time and time and time again in human history. Circumstances are different. The cultural aspects change. There's different personalities involved. But this is the same thing that plays itself out time and time again throughout history, even into the present context. And here's how it works. And you're seeing it play out in our own country and culture. You have bad people that do not submit themselves to Jesus Christ, and they climb up on their, their moral high grounds, their, their podiums, their pulpits, their their court bench, their public tribunals, their legislative assemblies, and they draw upon moral language. And they start to threaten, arrest, seize, fine, flex their muscles in front of the people of God. Let me give you some examples of this in the present realm. How often... It's just ridiculous if you think about it. But how often do we hear the language of hate speech being thrown in our face? You're like, um, I don't think it's right for half-naked, thong-wearing men who are women wearing women's apparel to be dancing in front of school children. Hate speech! It's like, just a second, we're, 
you're drawing upon a moral category, hate, and saying to parents who want to protect children who haven't even been awakened to their own sexuality yet. And immediately, hate speech and actually putting laws into place that increasingly are making it illegal to speak words of righteousness against evildoers. It's happening, and it's happening very fast. You put your hand up, you speak out against some nut job, woke ideology. You're a racist. Come on, seriously? We're racist? Who are the people that brought about an end to abolition? Or who are the people that brought about the abolition of slavery 150 years ago? Christians. Men like William Wilberforce that stuck his neck out, put his neck on the line, was threatened, was abused, was ostracized to put an end to slavery. What book in the world teaches that Christians are made, or people are made in the image and likeness of God? The Bible does. That all Christians are made in the image and likeness of God. What, what is the book that says there's actually no such thing as races, that we're all from one blood, the word of God? Where do you find that statement that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek, slave nor free, but we're all one? That's in the word of God. Christians aren't racist. They're opposed to racism. They're opposed to discrimination. And Christians throughout history have, have obviously made mistakes and errors, but those that have brought about an end to it, it wasn't the Muslims doing that, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the radical secularists, the atheists. Read Darwin. He was a racist if ever there was one. But as soon as you put your hand up and remind people about something to do with the word of God, you're a racist. Or you say to someone, you know, you're participating in sexual activity that's unbecoming, it's sinful, it's also destructive. I want to guide you in a new direction. Conversion therapy, let's pass a law that makes it a criminal offense. Let's threaten to throw God-fearing people in jail for five years for encouraging someone to conform to God's creational standards in the area of human sexuality. Do you see how that works itself out? Different context, different circumstances, different culture, but it's the same play. They're not interested in a robust dialogue because they can't beat us. Error can't beat truth. You can't actually look at a man and say they're a woman or a woman and say they're a man. You can't actually look at some weirdo twerking in front of children and say that's, that's right. Everybody knows that's wrong innately, but they deny it. But as soon as you call it out, you're the bad person. You're the racist. You're, you're hateful. You're far right. You're a radical extremist. It's the same play time and time again. And the reason for this is because truth always offends unrighteousness. It always does. See, if you don't have God, who becomes your ultimate authority? You. You become your ultimate authority. The state collectively becomes your ultimate authority. And when people have authority and power vested in themselves, they do not want to give it up. They, they, people have a, a, a bent towards autonomy, which means self-law. We just want to govern ourselves. We want to be the masters of our own fate. 
And the truth of God offended them in the first century and it, it offends them in our century as well. But here's the thing, as the camera pans to Stephen, it's so obvious to everyone. Notice it uses the word all. It's so obvious to everyone that he's innocent, but truth doesn't matter to evil people. His innocence doesn't matter. Their agenda is what matters. Bear this in mind. It's not the truth that matters, it's their agenda that matters. It is noteworthy though, that there are four characteristics about Stephen that, that, that surface in the text that I wanna just kind of unpack a little bit more that are worth emulating if you are gonna faithfully bear witness to Christ. And the first is to speak the truth. Stephen spoke the truth. We're not told in the text, but he's just as human as, as you and I are. I'm sure it was difficult. He probably had some anxiety at times or thought, you know, is this, is this, is this what I really want to do? But he speaks the truth. He bears witness to Christ. In Matthew 28, we're told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he's doing that. He's actually living out the great commission at his time in history. You know, it's so easy to be discouraged when you look around you, maybe when people are calling you names or subtly threatening you or not so subtly threatening you, or maybe you've, you've took a stand for Christ and it's resulted in a job loss or a demotion at work or the threat of job loss or whatever it might be. We're not the first generation to experience that. One of the powerful men of the old covenant era was Jeremiah. Very emotional man, by the way. Sometimes he was depressed, maybe more often than not. But he had this, this core to him, just a passion to tell the truth. But there's an event in the 20th chapter of Jeremiah where he, he's, he's honest and vulnerable about his human desire to just, to just run away, to, to give up, to stop preaching. It, just, it was too much, it's too difficult, the adversary was too big, there was too many hindrances, and he just, he just wanted out. Can you relate? I just want out. Like, I need to hit the relief valve, the, the escape, get into the escape pod like now. So he's, he's, he's mulling this over and he says in verse nine, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, my heart, in my heart, it were as a burning fire. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. So he, he wants to cut and run. He's like, man, if I say I will not speak anymore in his name, the word of God is still like a fire in me. I, I, I just can't not preach. Preaching can be frustrating. I'm not talking about what I'm doing right now. I'm just talking about conversations around the water cooler, taking a stand at a family gathering. It's hard. The prophet Ezekiel in the 33rd chapter speaks of a circumstance he found himself in says there, as people, came, people come to me as people do. They sit before me as your people. They hear my words, but they do not do them. For yea, I am to them as a lovely musician who plays well on his instrument. They hear my words, but they do not do them. 
people came to speak, to listen to Ezekiel. He was kind of a crazy guy. I remember years ago preaching a, a sermon series on the, the crazy antics of Ezekiel. You know, he goes and, and cooks his food on manure for a year in front of the city gates as a sermon illustration. He goes and buries his underwear under some rocks down by the river and then digs them up sometime later as a sermon illustration. People loved to listen to Ezekiel. He was entertaining. But they didn't want to listen to what he said. They didn't want to respond to what he said. So there are some, some that will plug up their ears and not want to hear what you say. Others that will want to hear what you say but not act on what you say. It's challenging to take a stand for the truth. But ultimately, without truth, what are we left with? Lies, evil, wrongdoing, suffering. The second thing about Stephen that is noteworthy is he maintains his composure. He never freaks out, never loses his mind. He's sober-minded. He is wise. He is spirit-led. He's portrayed in the text as being calm and at peace with his circumstances. He's focused on that which is to come. The third thing is he does not demonstrate fear. He's willing to sacrifice it all, even to the point of death. At the last minute, he does not say, uncle, you know, I give. He perseveres unto death. Fourth, he remains steadfast. Even when consequences are incurred, he remains steadfast. He stays the course. He focuses on Christ. We're going to see his vision in a moment. Now, as you enter into the seventh chapter of Acts, I'm not going to read all of that for you because if you've read the Old Testament, you've already read all of it. But in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53, what Stephen does is he preaches a sermon. But what a sermon is, is it's a summary of a series of events starting in Genesis chapter 12, right through to the building of Solomon's temple. So he's, he's covering, hop, skipping, and jumping over a series of events, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right through to the building of Solomon's temple. And here are the themes he draws out in his summary of Old Testament history. He touches on Abraham's call in Mesopotamia. Abraham went from Mesopotamia to Haran to the land of Canaan. He touches on that and God's faithfulness there. God's blessing of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. He touches on the Exodus, God's miraculous redemption of his people from four centuries of captivity in Egypt. He touches on the giving of the law at Sinai, the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He touches down on Israel's hiccup in the wilderness when they ridiculously decided, after having been redeemed by Yahweh God, to build a golden calf to bow down and worship it, and God's rebuke of their idolatry. And he then ends by discussing the favor that God showed to David and Solomon when they obeyed him. And the question is why? Why does he recall almost half of the Old Testament history as he is confronting his opponents. Well, if you find your way to the 51st verse, we see where he takes his summary of these Old Testament events. He confronts them. 
If you're one of those tone police Christians that never likes to use challenging language, it's always gonna be soft and you know, Mr. Rogers-like, this is gonna feel a little awkward for you. But this Stephen who's gracious, filled with wisdom, he just goes right for the throat. Here's what he says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that is the Messiah, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He parrots Peter. Peter confronted them for killing Christ. And he does the same thing. He wants them to be reminded of their participation in the crucifixion of Christ. And here's where he ends. You who received the law as delivered by angels and, do, and did not keep it. That's a hard sermon. One might think, I don't know if there's a lot of wisdom there, dude. Like you're, you're in court. You might want to sort of throttle back. You might want to play the, you know, the nice guy card, the victim card. You might want to spend all of your time defending yourself against the allegations of the false witnesses. That'd be a good tactic. Just defend yourself. Just talk about your own innocence. But he doesn't even take the bait. He just focuses them back on their own sin and their rejection of Christ. So two, two basic things he goes after here. He confronts them for rejecting the long-awaited Messiah, as their forebears did. And secondly, he confronts them for killing God's spokesmen, the prophets of old. So remember I said from the first century onward, history repeats itself. The tactics of, the, of evildoers repeat themselves. That was taking place before as well, all through the old covenant. We, I, I referenced Jeremiah when God's man stood up and said, um, actually there's sin in the house. They run him out of town or they try to kill him or they bear false witness against him. And sadly, these evildoers are those who claim allegiance to God, but they freak out when Stephen confronts them. And now we read of the church's first martyrdom. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, which means they were irrational. There was no dialogue, there was no discussion, there was no presentation of evidence. They just, in their flesh, they were offended. And they freak out. But then it says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Well, they didn't like that either. He said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. So this is a declaration of Christ's deity. That's how they heard this. This is a declaration of Christ's deity. You're telling me the one we put to death is with God standing at his right hand? Well, then they just lose their minds. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped up their ears, which is a weird thing for adults to do, but they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him, totally out of control, demonically fueled, fueled by the flesh. 
and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Now, I just want to pause there for a moment. There's a few situations in scripture where we read about stoning, but enter into the moment. Can you imagine being stoned to death? Can you imagine being dragged out of a city? And I doubt the first stone would have brought the death blow and being pummeled, perhaps with hundreds of stones, until the time you passed out and died. That's a brutal death. And especially for a servant of God that was simply bearing witness to Christ. And then we have this little sidebar in the text, which is there, because there's no throwaway lines in the Bible. It's there because it sets us up to, to be introduced to Saul, who's known as Paul later on. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So we're just told Saul was there, who would become the, the future Christian apostle, uh, Paul. But right now he's complicit. He's wicked. He's complicit in the first martyrdom ever to take place in human history of a Christian. Well, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You'll notice in the text that he is very Christ-like in his response. Remember Jesus on the cross, committing himself to the Lord? Father, receive my spirit. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Well, here we have Stephen being a little Christ at the moment of his, at the moment of his death. He cries out, Lord, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's exactly the kind of thing Jesus said on the cross. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which is a Christian euphemism for death. He died. Why do, why do we call it falling asleep? Because we know it's not permanent, just like sleep is not permanent. Now, as I, I've read this many, many times through my Christian journey, but there's, there's something about this. When I was reading it this week, I thought, it almost seems hard to believe. Like it's, it almost seems hard to believe that a human being would be capable of that kind of commitment. And it's true. In and of ourselves, we're not capable of this kind of commitment. We're not capable of willingly being stoned for our faith. We're not capable of absolute trust in the Lord apart from faith. We're not capable of forgiving our enemies as they're, they've lied about us and are stoning us to death. But Stephen wasn't doing this of his own strength. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. God was operating through him. Brothers and sisters, without the help of the Holy Spirit, not a single one of us could respond as Stephen did. I'm convinced of that. In our flesh, we are cowards and we are coddlers of self. That's who we are. Even as Christians, sometimes we're more cowardly than we might want to admit, and we're very self-focused. We're still wrestling with the sin nature. But keep in mind, this wasn't um, Stephen's first rodeo. He had a track record of, of serving Christ in what one might call lesser areas of ministry and more obscure areas of ministry. We don't know a lot about him, but we know he was 
a man of wisdom and virtue that approved himself. We know that he was overseeing the food distribution. You know what that says to me? Track records matter. Track records matter. We may or may not, who knows? We may or may not be put to death for our faith, be imprisoned for our faith, be fined for our faith. Who knows what the future holds? But day by day, you get up, you treat your spouse faithfully, you're generous, you read your Bible, you pray, you keep short order with the Lord, you go to sleep, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, day after day, week after week, month after month, you call out sin, you're public about your faith, just in the small things. And when the time comes, if it comes, where you are confronted with a situation like Stephen, you'll be prepared for it. Stephen had a track record of faithfulness. He had grown in his walk with the Lord. He had submitted himself to the Lord. In his death, you'll notice he clings to the hope of eternal life. And he even prays for the repentance of his enemies. And by the way, God answered his prayer. Because Saul, the only one named by name, does come to faith in Jesus Christ and writes more books in the, Old, in the New Testament than anyone else. Doesn't write the greatest amount of material. Luke did that. Acts and Luke are bigger in their volume than Paul's epistles. But he, wrote the, he writes the greatest number of New Testament epistles and becomes an absolute champion for Christ. And the reason why that happened is because God used the faithful witness of Stephen. When Jesus prayed for his enemies on the cross, not all of them came to faith in Jesus Christ. Some did, the majority didn't. But the world was changed to the sacrifice of Christ, not only through his, his work, but also his example. And so as Christians, we are called to pray for and forgive our enemies. Does that mean we can't call him out? No, he, he calls him out and forgives them at the same time. Calls him out, uses bold language, and forgives them at the same time. So it's not an either or. It's a both and. It almost seems too good to be true, but it happened. And this same kind of event would play itself out time and time again throughout history, even into the time of the Protestant Reformation. When I was in um, Austria years ago, we, we visited a, a site where a, a martyr was burned at the stake. And you know, it seems like ancient history, it's like 500 years ago now, but I've thought about that. Like if I actually, you hear about burning at the stake, you, you know what that is, but if you actually entered into it for a moment and thought, man, what if I, so what if right now I'm in prison for, for my faith, I'm looking through some bars and I see other Christians going up and smoke out in the public square and I know my turn's coming and the whole time I'm being asked to recant and I smell the smell of burning flesh and I hear the screams and I know my time's coming and I'm being asked to recant and then eventually I'm, I'm taken out into the public square and I'm, I'm, I'm strapped to a, a post and wood is piled around me and oil is poured on and that, that first flame starts to lick up my leg and I feel the the pain, have you ever been burnt? Just maybe, in a, maybe on your finger on, on the stove, it hurts. Can you imagine 
the whole lower half of your body, and then your entire body being engulfed in flames. And the way out is to simply say, I don't believe in Jesus. Do you think any of us in our flesh would be able to endure that kind of pain if we weren't filled with the Holy Spirit of God? I wouldn't be able to, to my own shame. But at the same time, it's to the glory of God that God can fill us with his spirit and enable us to live large for Jesus. God doesn't always rescue us from tribulation and trial in the moment. He doesn't. Otherwise, you have a big problem with what happened to Stephen and later Paul. But at the end of the day, we know who wins. Now, brothers and sisters, I have no idea what challenges lie ahead for the Christian church. We could be entering into a period of great revival and reformation. Wouldn't that be awesome? But the trajectory right now is not good. The trajectory is not good. You speak the truth, hate speech. You speak the truth, time in jail. You try to take a stand for your faith, you're shamed as a racist, an extremist. That hurts. I don't know the direction Canadian culture is taking, but it's, it's not good. We do not know what the future holds, but we should all resolve in Christ to stand firm. And as I've said already, martyrdom is always preceded. It's always preceded by small tribulations, by small tests, by small trials, by small opportunities to take a stand for Christ. And if you don't practice, if you don't practice suffering, if you don't practice responding properly to trial and tribulation, how in the world do we think we would actually respond to, to full-on martyrdom for Christ? In all of this, let's put into practice as best as we can the characteristics that Stephen put into practice. And in order to do that, let's continually submit ourselves to the word of God and the spirit of God and allow him to operate through us. Less of me, more of Christ. That should be all of our motto. Less of me, more of Christ. Less of my power, less of my personality, less of my resolve and more Holy Spirit-driven power as we surrender ourselves to God. Make sure that as you take a stand for Christ, it is empowered by the Spirit of God and that when you're complimented for it or you become the great example, you just point people up and you remind them who the source of your strength and courage actually is. 